Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 22 in our series of 2021, and today's date is Friday, July the 2nd. First, I'll be talking to Scott Huntsman, founder and CEO of Allcast PPE Supplies, one of the country's largest PPE suppliers. He says that 80% of the masks available are not registered with the TGA and therefore are not identified as being able to stop the transmission of COVID. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about the market in the week ahead. But now let's talk to Scott Huntsman. Scott, uh, you've noticed big concerns about uh, people getting the right face masks. Yes, correct. Tell us about that. So we're obviously a a manufacturer here in Sydney. Um, We, you know, basically we, we came to the calls of, you know, state and federal governments, but we did get into this a little bit before the pandemic started. Um, and then we, obviously we had to learn very quickly uh, of, of you know, what masks uh, are and what they're supposed to do and, and what protection they're supposed to offer. Um, and now all we see is a flurry of, you know, cheap uh, product on the market and we see, you know, very, very poor quality masks. Um, and, you know, just the other day we were in a service station and it, it you know, it was twelve ninety five, and it claimed that it would protect you from COVID-19 and that's one of the, the, the things that you're not allowed to do uh, is claim that it will connect, it will protect you from, from COVID. Um, it's just one of those bad things. So how many face masks on the market today don't have antiviral filtration construction? Um, we would say roughly about the 80% mark. Um, there's quite a lot of brands out there and there's a lot of brands that just popped up out of nowhere. Um, and then obviously you've got your, your cheaper uh, imported products as well that, um, have have been brought in and just sold by you know street vendors. Um, we've even had landscapers contact us to to sell us masks, um, hoping that we could help move the product. So there'd be thousands. So you can pick them up anywhere, from curbside vendors to eBay sellers to petrol stations. Yes, yes, definitely. So it's putting people in who are immunosuppressed in a high risk situation from contracting COVID nineteen. Yes, it is because um, you know generally when you when you go to the store and you want to pick up a mask and you know you you, you obviously want to try to get the best that you can, um, you know, and you, you you come across one that says yeah it has a ninety five percent filtration efficiency, which is uh, it's it's subpar. It's not a very good 
efficiency at all. Um, and you, you expect it to be, you know, what you intended it to be, you know, to protect you, to, to save you from uh, any pathogens or fluid barriers or anything like that. And you, you, you're basically overwhelmed with uh, fake advertising. Right. Okay. Okay. So uh, what are the things consumers should look out for in order to ensure they're buying genuine medical grade face masks? So obviously, if you can, if you have the opportunity, um, you know, let's you know support Australian. There, there is other manufacturers out there besides us. Uh, so one, uh, two, have a look uh, at the uh, the filtration efficiency. If there is test results uh, available, uh, generally the the manufacturer will boast those on their website, like we do, um, and you know, obviously look that they're, they're registered with the TGA, so ARTG, and it'll have a number after that. Um, you can you can Google that number and it'll give you the certificate allowing you to know that those those masks are, are registered with the TGA and they have obviously gone through the approval process. Packaging? You, you would have to read packaging? Yes, repackaging. Um, obviously, you would want to look at the dot points to make sure that it has a PFE rating. It's not a part of the Australian standard, um, but a PFE rating is a, a much smaller micron, uh, and it goes up to 0.01 um of filtration. So anything above 98 and, and above is a good good uh, efficiency rating. A BFE rating, which is the bacteria filtration. Um, level three in surgical. Uh, you obviously want to see those words on there so that you understand that the um, the manufacturer actually knows what they're putting out. So these are things that people really need to watch out for. And yes. sadly, 80% aren't doing this. Correct, yeah. So there, there is a lot of fake stuff on the market. I mean, we get samples of them every day. Um, and, and we look at the construction of those masks. We look how thin the materials are. We water test them. Um, a good mask, you could be able to cup it in your hand, make a cup out of it, uh, and pour a glass of water in there without any leaks. So that's a good fluid protection. Surely all face masks would need to go through therapeutic goods administration. No, not all, not at all. Um, you, are, you can sell face masks, um, provided you don't make any therapeutic claims, uh, those being, again, uh, you know, viral, antiviral uh, protection, uh, bacterial filtration, uh, the word surgical hospital um, or examination. It, it, so you can have any sort of wording you want? You, you can to a point, yes. Um, you can you can have any wording you want until uh, you start making claims. Then you, you must uh, obviously go through the TGA's process of approvals. That's quite extraordinary because it means the most vulnerable members of our community are quite exposed to this. Correct. Yes. Um, you know, and we, we, we need to make sure, you know, we need to take our, our safety seriously. I mean, you know, Australia is a thriving country and we want to keep it that way. Um, and if we're, we're looking to, to, to get something as simple as a face mask for protection, uh, we want to obviously get the best that we can. Well, tell us about all cast PPE supplies. So all cast, all cast PPE is a, is a, a sort of brainchild of uh, my brother-in-law and I. Um, we decided so it's a family based business. Yeah, so it's a family based business, yes. Um, so we, we just before the pandemic started, we were looking at making uh, medical equipment um, and then we saw a need pop up for uh, face masks. So then we, we, we started investing and, and doing some research and, and obviously we, we had some very big hurdles to get over. Um, but now we've, we've gotten to the point where you know we were at one stage employing over 180 people. Uh, in our factory um, and you know we have nine machines now very high speed servo machines um, and then now we're uh, we're also 
moving forward into other products now in the market like sterile wraps and uh, surgical respirators, uh, construction sort of industrial respirators and things like that as well. So we're, we're, we're climbing up there. <laughs> we're climbing up the ladder. So this is coming out of your factory in Sydney, is that right? Correct, yeah. Yep. And how many do you employ at the moment? Uh, at the moment, we're we're down because obviously the market has slowed down a lot. There's not much. There's not so much of a huge demand. Um, so now we're down to roughly three shifts. So we have about sixty staff on. Um, uh, so thirty thirty staff a shift. Okay, but obviously, um, COVID is showing no signs of going away. No, it's not showing any signs of going away. I mean, obviously, we want the best for 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 everybody. Um, but you know, if if we can offer a, a really good quality product, um, we didn't even gouge price. Uh, sorry, price gouge like other other people did. Um, there was times where masks, a box of fifty masks, were two hundred dollars. We stayed. I remember. I remember that. Yeah. Yes. Our price. Our price stayed the same throughout the entire thing, um, and even our wholesale price was even cheaper. So that you know. Um, uh, wholesale suppliers could um, could provide you know uh, good quality masks at a fair price. So we we retail them on our website for forty three ninety five, right? Uh, for a pack of fifty level three surgical masks, they're made right here, obviously. Um, and then we have other variants of in tie backs and uh, individual wraps for you know people that work in transport that hand them out uh, for hygiene purposes and things like that. Uh, you also have a, an elu mask, is that right? So that's that's our e-loop mask that we generally sell a lot of. We also have a tie-back mask, um, and then we also have tie-backs with a, a, a plastic face shield uh, for people that are obviously surgeons and, and examining uh, patients. So who would be your biggest market? Our biggest market at, at currently would be uh, the general population right now. Uh, we are trying to move more into the medical space, uh, although it is quite a little conglomerate of people that you need to sort of get to know before they start purchasing your products. <laughs> right, okay, okay. But uh, but you're trying to move into, say, hospitals? And Correct, yeah. So, yeah, so we, we have, um, well, we have a Nelson Laboratory test report on our masks, uh, which is a, uh, a very reputable, globally recognised uh, laboratory. Um, and we basically... Um, we, we, we are one of the best three-ply masks on the market according to those test results. Um, so we are now offering that to, to medical personnel. Obviously, COVID-19 will be around for a while. Hopefully, it will be brought under control. Where do you see the market going from there? I see that obviously I see the market like a lot of a lot of there is there has been a lot of fake products. I mean, you know, government entities and stuff purchasing fake products and having to throw them in the bin because they just weren't worth it. Um, and you know, I see it moving forward into more of a, a continual supply. Obviously, not as as large. Uh, obviously, we would like to see our masks globally uh, rather than. Uh, just just internally, but for now we, we're keeping everything here in Australia. And are you so are you looking at a global market? Yes, we are. We are. We are looking. We are looking at exporting. Uh, there's just a, a flurry of fake product on the market, and uh, a lot of brokers that are in the race to the bottom price of, of masks. Right. Okay. Okay. But you've been you've been having discussions about that. Yes. Yeah. We've 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 had several discussions with different suppliers. We're assisting other. Uh, not just locally, but internationally as well. We're, we're assisting uh, other manufacturers uh, in the US and, and Europe um, with efficiency and um, product makeup and all that type of stuff. Well, that's quite extraordinary. And hopefully we will see eventually 
the majority of the population will realise the importance of having proper face masks. 100%. I, I really, really hope that our education and all that type of stuff that we're putting out there is is really having an impact and uh, the general population does uh, utilise a really good face mask. Well, Scott, it's been fascinating talking to you and thank you very much for your time. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's talk to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James. Well, Craig, what's ahead in the market? Well, the big focus is going to be on the Reserve Bank. It really dominates you know, so the agenda over the week. We've got the Reserve Bank board meeting coming out on, on Tuesday. The focus is very much on the, the bond buying program in you know, so this, this meeting. They'll determine whether to continue um, buying bonds at a rate of $100 billion over a six-month period or wind it back. And our expectation is what we're going to see is the Reserve Bank winding back some of the, the bond buying, tapering, if you like to, to call it, you know, so the jargon. Uh, $50 billion we're now looking at over a six-month period. There's also a question about um, the yield curve control, about the target for the three-year bond uh, rate. Now, it's basically uh, sort of um, uh, the question is whether they continue with the April 2024 bond and target that or will they move on to the November 2024 maturity? We think they'll um, remain with the, uh, the, uh, the April 2024 you know, sort of bond target. They're still looking to target uh, interest rates at that part of the curve at 0.1% uh, and, and buying bonds, but buying bonds in, in uh, less significant uh, quantities. And um, uh, that's why the, they can continue to support the, the economy. We know that the Australian economy has done very, very well, but we know that there's still plenty of challenges out there with a uh, small number of lockdowns and uh, cases that are occurring across Australia and have occurred across Australia over the, the past couple of weeks. We will give the Reserve Bank Governor's full explanation about um, the monetary policy decision also on, on Tuesday. So that decision will be handed down at 230 and that'll have the details of the bond buying program. And then we'll have uh, at four o'clock on that day, the Reserve Bank Governor will deliver some remarks on that monetary policy decision. He'll also um, uh, take questions. So certainly that will be a major focus uh, on Tuesday. The Reserve Bank Governor gets another opportunity, yet another opportunity to be able to speak to, to the masses, this time on Thursday. So uh, Thursday, July the 8th, uh, the Reserve Bank Governor is due to speak at a lunchtime talk in Brisbane for the Economic Society of Australia. Um, barring you know, some other things, you know, so whether he joins that um, the meeting in person or um, virtually, we'll have to determine what happens with the COVID cases. And we know that you know, it's very much a volatile issue you know, so at the moment. So, yeah, the Reserve Bank really dominating you know, the agenda over the coming week, as I say, Tuesday and Thursday are the key days. Well, what's interesting with the Reserve Bank is, I mean, the futures market has been talking about a rate hike in 2022. Uh, uh, this is following the uh, un- unemployment figures, which uh, fell uh, quite dramatically. Yeah, well, it's certainly the case that when you think about you know, the economic outcomes, it's continued to exceed even the, the most optimistic of the, the Reserve Bank uh, uh, forecast. Uh, and if that continues, if that continues on that sort of path, and that's what we believe is going to continue to happen, then the Reserve Bank is going to have to concede that um, there's more risk in terms of growth um, continuing to exceed expectations, therefore inflation continuing to exceed expectations. But um, uh, really, in terms of this current environment, I think the Reserve Bank 
over the next uh, few months will continue to hasten slowly. It's not going to be not going to signify any rush to be lifting interest rates. And you're right. I mean, we've got um, uh, forecasters such as the Commonwealth Bank Group, you know, such as our group. Uh, we recently changed our call to say that the first interest rate hike will be November 2022. Um, it's still some way off, though. I mean, when, when we're talking about these sorts of forecasts, got to remember that it's more more than 12 months down the track, almost 18 months down, down the track. So. Um, we can talk about, you know, some interest rates changing, but uh, that could all change too with um, uh, COVID and things like vaccination numbers and virus, you know, sort of outbreaks. You know, that could, you know, sort of provide a spanner in the works. But certainly in terms of our view, in terms of the economy, we're looking for the uh, unemployment rate now to be 4.5% by the end of um, 2021, the end of this year, and uh, around about 4% the jobless rate target by the end of 2022. So certainly um, it's not just the Reserve Bank that's been surprised by the, the strength of the economic data. Uh, forecasters like ourselves have been surprised as well. Got to remember that unemployment rate has had uh, the, the most significant uh, improvement in a six month period we've ever seen in terms of the monthly records going back to 1978. So it has been quite amazing. And uh, I suppose when you've got the, the borders closed, you don't get access to um, the um, workers for, from abroad and you have to make do with the, the workers that are, are available and um, uh, that's putting you know, sort of downward pressure on um, the unemployment rate, putting upward pressure on job vacancies. We do know job vacancies are at the highest levels in, in 12 and a half years. And indeed over this week um, on Monday, uh, we've got um, ANZ job advertisement series that will come out. We've already had uh, the National Skills Commission you know, sort of come out with their figures saying that um, job vacancies are at 12 and a half year highs. We think that's going to be confirmed when ANZ releases its uh, figures on Monday. Well, that relates to skill shortages that we have, and that will push up wages, which will inevitably push up inflation, which will exercise the RBA's mind, won't it? Yeah, well, that's certainly our view. And um, we've got to remember the, the Reserve Bank's view uh, before increasing interest rates. It wants uh, three things to happen. It wants that jobless rate down and it wants to see full employment. That's really the goal for not just for the federal government, uh, but uh, also for the central bank it wants to see full employment. As to where that full employment rate is, you know, is the $64 million question. Uh, is it at a rate of 4%? Is it slightly higher or slightly lower? And we can only know that once we uh, sort of approach that, um, that uh, fabled rate. Uh, it wants to see wages growing at a much faster rate. So We've got wages growing at the moment at 1.5% annual rate. The Reserve Bank uh, wants to see 3% growth in wages, so we're still a long way from that being achieved. And the other thing is that the Reserve Bank wants to see inflation sustainably between 2 and 3%, not just dipping up there and, and, and then dipping back down, but inflation uh, continuing to hold in the, the target band which um, uh, of 2 to 3%, which is... Uh, been hard to, to achieve in the last couple of years. The Reserve Bank has been trying to get inflation up by um, using expansionary monetary policy, but it's found it very, very hard to get inflation back up into to that sort of band. So there's three preconditions for rates to, to go up, and we're still a long way away from those pre preconditions occurring. But um, uh, as we've been saying, I mean, um, if um, the job market continues to tighten, that'll put upward pressure on wages and upward pressure on prices. Well, the interesting thing is in the US, uh, 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 unemployment had to drop to about 3% till there was a movement on wages. 
could the same thing happen here? Well, the same thing could happen here. And if we cast our minds back to just before uh, the uh, COVID-19 virus hit, uh, what the Reserve Bank was running was a much more stimulatory uh, 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 program in terms of monetary policy. Uh, and that's because it had looked at the evidence that was occurring uh, abroad and saying, well, look, if the United States and uh, the UK and Europe and uh, other countries can get unemployment rate far below what they've seen in the past and not generate higher wages, then we should be you know, trying to do the same. We want to get more and more people in jobs because that's the way of getting greater prosperity across the economy, to have more people in jobs and in good paying jobs you know, as well. Um, so the Reserve Bank has had been having a fast, more stimulatory settings uh, before um, the COVID you know, sort of came along. Um, but, um, yeah, the hard part is estimating where that level of full employment is. Um, uh, before COVID-19, you could say it was uh, somewhere around about 4%, for, say 4.5% after COVID. Well, you know, it's anyone's guess. It has the, um, uh, the target rate for... Um, unemployment you know, sort of moved up a little bit, perhaps because we can't get the workers in from abroad. Perhaps we now need to be targeting an unemployment rate of 45 to 5% rather than 4% because um, uh, the, the fact that the borders here you know, sort of closed. So it's, a, it's an interesting, interesting point. You know, so a lot's going to change over the uh, coming months, but certainly, as I've been saying, you know, sort of the view of the Commonwealth Bank Group is that we may get uh, earlier than expected interest rate hike and as I say, yes, we're predicting that for November 2022. Well, that'll be fascinating to watch. And uh, we'll be watching that uh, very, very closely. And uh, uh, Craig, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leo. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the major banks have unveiled a suite of support measures for New South Wales customers struggling through the lockdown as business counts the cost of a strict two-week stay-at-home orders. The support from the major lenders, which includes loan deferrals, comes as estimates put the cost of a lockdown at $2 billion, and as Prime Minister Scott Morrison confirmed, the $500 Commonwealth disaster recovery payment would be available to Sydney Siders from July the 1st. Banks have also offered to provide tailored support to customers suffering financial hardship as a result of the lockdown. CBA's retail customers can also access loan deferrals and have the option to restructure their home loan debt switch to a fixed-rate home loan, and use funds in their offset accounts. NAB, Westpac and ANZ unveiled similar measures over the weekend, as Sydney endured the tough COVID-19 restrictions. ANZ has extended its support for retail customers with measures including payment relief, waiving fees, restructuring home loan debt, and, f and switching to a fixed-rate loan. Its business customers can also access short-term payment relief on asset finance or business loans, receive a refund on merchant terminal fees, and have some other fees waived. And Australia will be smaller and older than previously expected in 40 years, with a large and ageing population that will continue to put great stress on welfare and health services. This is the first downward revision of official projections in an intergenerational report in 20 years. The much lower projections in Monday's fifth five-yearly intergenerational report will mean indefinite budget deficits, with no surplus projected for 40 years. Only 2.7 Australians of, a, of traditional working age for each Australian over 65, down from 4, and average annual economic growth of 2.6%, down from 3%. The report says a pandemic has slowed both Australia's birth rate and inflow of migrants. The 2015 intergenerational report projected an Australian population of almost 40 million by 2054-55. The 2021 update 
projects 38.8 million by 2060-61. The grim fact is that Australian business must start preparing for a workforce that is smaller and older than ever before, and automation is likely to be crucial to push up a productivity growth rate that is rather heroically expected to leap from 1.2% back to the 30-year average of 1.5%. This automation will take many forms. Digitisation of back-end processes, use of artificial intelligence and data analytics to serve customers, and most likely the increasing use of robotics. Any technology that can reduce labour could create a competitive advantage for a firm, a new revenue stream, or both. And mining giant Rio Tinto has been accused of allowing hundreds of irreplaceable indigenous cultural artefacts from the iron ore-rich Pilbara region to be thrown away at a rubbish dump in Darwin, and failed to disclose a disposal to Aboriginal traditional owners for decades. Eastern Gurama, traditional owners of Rio Tinto's multi-billion dollar Marindu mine, say that they are left with nothing after finding out the company approved the destruction of artefacts salvaged from their important and sacred sites in the 1990s. The Wintawari Gurama Aboriginal Corporation says Eastern Gurama elders discovered their artefacts had ended up in the bin after obtaining documents which describe their accidental and then deliberate discarding and destruction, which they say has never been disclosed to them by Rio Tinto. Based on their discovery, the Wintawara Garama Aboriginal Corporation, representing the Eastern Garama traditional owners, has made a powerful new submission to the Federal Parliamentary Inquiry into Rio Tinto's destruction of Jukan Gorge, accusing Rio Tinto and the West Australian Government of keeping the matter a secret ever since. And Australia's exports of resources and energy are set to crash through the $300 billion mark for the first time this financial year, buoyed by unexpectedly high prices for iron ore, which is expected to account for almost half the total. About $310 billion of export revenues are anticipated from mining and energy in 2020-21, according to the Department of Industry, Science, Energy and Resources, which has lifted its estimates for a 2020-21 export revenues by almost 5% since March. A further strong gain is now expected next year, rather than the modest dip that was thought to be on the cards just three months ago. Federal Resources Minister Keith Pitt said the incredible results underscored the importance of the resources sector to the national economy through the COVID-19 downturn. Higher than anticipated prices for LNG, thermal coal and base metals were all contributing to the rosy outlook for this financial year. The forecast for 2020-21 export revenues represents a 7% increase from last year's record of $291 billion and has now been upgraded over successive quarters, including by almost 5% from March's forecast thanks to runaway iron ore prices. After topping the $100 billion mark in 2019-20, the first for any commodity, iron ore earnings are expected to surge this year to $149 billion. That makes the total resources and energy exports thanks to a surge in global steel production. China's trade hostilities with Australia have failed to dampen thermal coal earnings, with miners pivoting to other markets helped by critical shortages after a freezing northern hemisphere winter, the Department of Industry, Science and Energy and Resources reported in a quarterly assessment. And the Morrison government spent an estimated $4 million on advertisements on Facebook in the past 12 months. The data comes from US-based Pathmedics, which is launching in Australia and New Zealand and provides brands, their advertising agency partners and media companies insight into where advertising dollars are being allocated across the digital ecosystem. Pathmedics co-founder Gabe Gottlieb says brands and advertising agencies can use Pathmedics data to see what's happening across the digital ecosystem. According to the Pathmedics data, the spending on Facebook picked up from February this year, with $3.1 million of the $4 million over the past year being spent in the past five months. From April 2020 to July 2020, the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, the Australian government spent an estimated $72,000 on Facebook ads, sharing information on overseas travel restrictions and pointing Australians to the smarttraveller.gov.au website for advice on returning to the country. 
The data is collected via a panel of people who sign up to use an app to detect the ads they see in digital environments with Pathmedics, applying a cost per mile CPM, the cost an advertiser pays for a thousand views of an ad, obtained from Facebook's public filings or other public information to estimate spend. From November 2020 to February 2021, the Federal Department of Health invested in a series of Facebook ads encouraging people to see a doctor if they were feeling unwell, with a campaign published in a variety of languages including Arabic, an estimated cost of 385000 Chinese, $180,000, and Vietnamese, $99,000. The estimated spending on pandemic-related advertising comes as advertising experts urge the government to dial up the fear factor in COVID-19 vaccine campaigns in an effort to boost vaccination figures. The government investment in Facebook ads highlighted how its $110 billion infrastructure plan is better connecting various states, including Western Australia, $190,000, ACT, $82,000, and Queensland, $63,000. From April the 6th to June 25, the government spent an estimated $56,900 on campaigns on domestic violence against women. For the past 12 months, it has spent an estimated $40,000 on desktop display advertising, $38,000 on mobile display, $284,000 on dollars on desktop video and two thousand dollars on mobile video. After Facebook, federal government spent the most on YouTube, two hundred and eighty five thousand seven hundred dollars, realestate.com.au, twenty seven thousand and eight hundred dollars, and Forbes.com, twenty two thousand six hundred dollars, according to estimates from Pathmatics. And CSL plans to devote several floors of its new 18-storey head office and research centre in Melbourne's Parkville to a collaborative space for small biotech companies and researchers that need help to turn their ideas into businesses, Chief Scientific Officer Andrew Nash said. The $340 million building is part of a wave of major expansion projects the global blood products and vaccines giant is undertaking in Australia. Others include a $900 million new fractionation facility at the existing Broadmeadows plant to create one of the world's largest plasma processing plants and an $800 million plant for producing vaccines at Tullamarine. Dr Nash said CSL and its partners in the Incubator Project, Melbourne University and the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, want to model the incubator on the world's leading precincts for medical research, commercialisation such as Boston, San Diego in the US and Toronto in Canada. And retailers and logistics operators are seeking priority vaccinations and pop-up injection hubs for truck drivers, distribution centre staff and supermarket workers amid a spike in food and grocery sales and renewed panic buying in response to the rapid spread of the Delta strain of COVID-19. The Australian Logistics Council, which represents truck drivers and freight handlers at a broad range of companies including Toll, Linfox, Sydney Airport, Coles, Woolworths and Amazon, said that while 600,000 supply chain workers nationally were considered to be essential workers, they were not getting priority access to vaccines. Jeff Adams, the Group Chief Executive of Food, Liquor and Hardware, wholesaler Metcash, said the company was in talks with governments about obtaining priority vaccination for distribution centre staff. Discount supermarket chain Aldi also wants employers to have priority access to COVID-19 vaccinations. We will continue to advocate for this with respect that there are thousands of vulnerable people and essential workers that should be prioritised, said Adrian Christie, Director of Aldi's Customer Interactions. While governments are urging people to get vaccinated, members of the general public who go online in some states, including New South Wales, to book in for the Pfizer vaccine are told all available slots are full. The Toll Group, which employs about 20,000 people in Australia, said it would like to collaborate with health officials to set up on-site vaccination clinics for drivers, warehouse workers and operations teams at key sites. The Australian Airports Association has also called for airport workers to be prioritised. And Commonwealth Bank and National Australia Bank have extended banking arrangements with Australia Post by a decade, a move that gives the banks a broader reach into regional communities and Australia Post income to maintain its sprawling network. 
Westpac has taken an option to extend its deal with the post office for another year, as talks about a longer agreement continue. ANZ is not part of the arrangements with Australia Post, which allow customers of the other three big banks to conduct basic banking, including withdrawals, deposits, credit card repayments and bill payments. There are about 1,600 communities around Australia without a bank branch, where the post office is the only financial services retailer. And corporations face a crackdown on disclosing climate risks after major investor groups held briefings with Treasury and Nation's financial watchdogs to introduce a mandatory reporting system by 2024 in the latest warning to business on the risk of climate change. The investor group on climate change, which represents institutional investors in Australia and New Zealand with $2 trillion in assets, wants to make permanent a scheme known as a Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure aimed at giving shareholders more information about the risks presented by climate change. The regime would initially be created under voluntary if-not-why-not approach before moving to a strict mandatory system by 2024 to protect national economic stability and help investors properly price assets as financial markets grapple with how to address climate risk. Talks have been held between the IGCC and its investment partners with Commonwealth Treasury, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, the Australian Securities Investments Commission and the ASX Corporate Governance Council. The plan would initially target Australia's top 300 listed companies and large unlisted businesses in the hope that the powerful council of financial regulators would provide oversight of the investor scheme. And the cost of hiring skilled software developers, security specialists and data experts has gone up by about 30% in Australia in just 12 months. And the policy of trying to eliminate COVID-19 from the country is a large part of the reason, software companies claim. Australia needs to rethink its closed border policy and make it easier for seasoned technology workers and global talent to either return home or migrate here if a country's nascent tech boom is going to continue and without costs spiralling out of control, some leaders in the sector have said. Part of the reason, according to IT companies, was that demand for their services has increased dramatically during COVID-19, where many of their customers accelerated plans to modernise their IT systems. That led to an increase in demand for skilled technology staff, especially senior ones, pushing up wages. But another factor was that Australia's closed border policies were making it practically impossible to fill those vacancies with seasoned expatriate workers wanting to come home or overseas workers hoping to migrate. And, and COVID has caused Kathmandu profits to take a hike. The retailer became the first company to issue a revenue profit downgrade because of the renewed threat from COVID-19 and its Delta variant. Kathmandu says group total sales for the 2021 financial year are expected to be below its original expectations as a result of the COVID-19 lockdowns across Australia. The company said 40 stores are closed in New South Wales for a minimum of two weeks and 26 have closed in Western Australia for at least four days. This follows a two-week lockdown in Victoria which impacted 62 stores in early June. Subsequently, group total sales for financial year are expected to be $930 million and underlying earnings before interest tax appreciated and amortisation is estimated at $120 million. The impact of the New South Wales and recent Victorian lockdowns and associated movement restrictions is estimated to be around $13 million on EBITDA. And Medibank will return more than $100 million in COVID-19 savings to customers as part of its pandemic financial relief package, with 2 million policyholders set to benefit. In a statement issued on Tuesday, the private health insurers said it would hand back around $105 million in net claim savings to Medibank and customers who held hospital and or extras covers in the 2021 financial year. The premium relief will see up to $52 return for extras only policies and up to $175 return for hospital and extras policies. On average, it works out for $25 for extras only policies and $60 for hospitals and extra policies, the insurer said. 
The premium relief will be applied to policies automatically by the end of September this year and will be funded through a partial release of the COVID-19 deferred claims liability as at 30th of June 2021, as well as permanent claim savings since 31st of December 2020. And AGL Energy will split itself into two separate listed businesses to better handle the rapidly transforming energy market, dividing its baseload coal plants into a new company, Axel Energy, to be headed by existing interim CEO Graham Hunt. The retail business, backed up by renewables generation and gas power, will be called AGL Energy and will be headed by AGL's existing Chief Customer Officer, Christine Corbett, as CEO. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Simon Sheik, founder of Fossil Fuel Free Super Fund Super Future. And we'll be talking about Scott Morrison's promise to reach net zero emissions, preferably by 2050, but vowing he won't sacrifice our traditional industries in regional areas by taxing emissions to reach the goal. But why wait until 2050 to reach net zero emissions when these could be met tomorrow through where you invest your super? What does net zero by 2050 even mean, aside from a lot of empty promises? And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.